Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Tuesday, October 9th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and coming up on today's show, we are going to talk about a number of issues, including why your GI Bill payments are delayed. Yeah, if you're receiving GI Bill payments, there's a good choice, good chance that you haven't gotten your first payment, maybe even your second at this point, as the uh, fall semester typically starts in September or late August for most college students. There's some issues with the payment system going out of the GI Bill. We're going to talk about that and clear up exactly why that's happening to some of you. We're also going to talk about a... Oh, we just lost the site there. Oh, fantastic. There we go. A local veterans care facility down in Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's being shut down. And the reason that it's being shut down, pretty interesting. It's not a good situation for the veterans who live there. And we're going to discuss that. We're also going to talk about Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, someone who I don't always agree with. Uh, In fact, there are many times, probably more that I do agree with her, that I don't agree with her. She is clashing with the VA over the Blue Water Navy issue. And this is one where I'm pretty sure I'm on her side. And then we're going to talk about a group of veterans that you probably don't think about very often, but there are millions upon millions upon millions of them. Who are they? They are the veterans of the People's Liberation Army of China. And guess what? They're protesting en masse in China, specifically in Shandong province. It's an issue related to uh, some veterans that were protesting and were beaten by some of the police there. Well, now tens of thousands of veterans, most of which are elderly, showed up, and there's some interesting stuff going on over there in China right now. So we're going to talk about all of that and whatever else comes up here on The Morning Briefing for Tuesday, October 9th, 2018. So, as I mentioned, the GI Bill is a great thing. The post-9-11 GI Bill specifically, that's where you get a living stipend to go along with paying your college tuition. Now, the GI Bill, for those of you who haven't used it yet or don't know much about it, it covers the equivalent of in-state tuition at a state school. So if you are in, well, I'll use New York since I went to school there. If you go to a state university of New York, it will cover your entire tuition at that school. If you go to a private school like, say, Columbia or NYU or something like that, then you will have to make up the difference between whatever the in-state tuition is and the uh, private school tuition. All of that good stuff, right? So it covers at least a big chunk of your full tuition, if not the full tuition itself, And you also get a living stipend, which is based on the zip code. Now, it used to be based on the zip code where you lived, not where you went to school. So if you lived in a less expensive place and went to school in a more expensive place, you got paid the BAH rate for an E5 with dependents for the area code that you lived in, the less expensive place. Now, 
if you go to school in, well, let's use New York City again. If you're going to school in New York City and living somewhere an hour away that doesn't have as high a BAH rate, you're supposed to get the BAH rate for New York City. That's a good deal, I guess. It can also work the other way. If you're living in New York City and going to school somewhere in like Orange County, New York, it's probably going to be less money that you're getting because it's based on the zip code where the school is located now. So that could be a problem or it could be a good thing. But if you're not getting any payment at all, guess what, my friends? You are having a big problem, and that's happening all across the country right now. You can check out the story on ConnectingVets.com. Our Matt Saintsing talks about it. Students using GI Bill benefits across the country are experiencing an unprecedented backlog of delayed payments that's forcing them to apply for emergency loans, borrow money from friends and family, being late on their rent, and in some cases, apparently even going without food. So here's what we heard from Antonio Banks, who's the Veterans Affairs Director at Eastern Tennessee State University. VA told us in additional conferences last year that they were hiring additional staff to implement the new bill. Again, making those changes that I mentioned, where it's going from the zip code where you live to the zip code where the school is. You'd think that would be simple. Change a zip code in a computer program. How hard could that be? Well, apparently pretty hard. As Mr. Banks told us, that didn't work. The VA issued guidance to schools globally not to certify anyone before the 1st of August. That was already going to set the VA up for a problem, according to Mr. Banks. Uh, apparently, the reason that they didn't want people registered or certified before the 1st of August is because they wanted the new program in place when they got certified so that they didn't need to make additional changes to anybody, you know, that whole thing. Couple that with a technical glitch stemming from when Congress told the VA to include those zip codes in the online portal, and then the VA didn't adjust the portal used to certify students. Certifications never made their way to the correct electronic destination, and now here we are. What we're entering the second week of October right now, right? Ninth, ninth of October. Last Monday was the first of October. At just Eastern Tennessee State University, six hundred ninety students are using the GI Bill. 300 of which are using Chapter 33, which is the post-9-11 GI Bill's official title. About 10% of the students there are missing payments. Of 690 students, 10%, 69 students. Yeah, I know, very funny. But this is a problem everywhere. It's not just at Tennessee. Apparently, according to Mr. Banks, he belongs to a message board for school certifying officials. And they communicate throughout all 50 states, asking each other if they're having the same problem. Everyone is saying, yeah, we're having that same issue. So that is a pretty big problem. And it's one that we've actually seen some messaging on at ConnectingVets.com. We were provided with some messages. Some students are being told it will be months before they get paid. Months before they get paid. Imagine that. Imagine that your job, as you were told was to go to school. You chose to do that, to get the degree that you wanted, to get the certifications that you wanted. And the VA told you, yeah, you'll have the post-9-11 GI Bill. You will have uh, the living stipend. We will pay for your tuition. We'll take care of all of this stuff. And then it ends up not happening for months? Hmm. Yeah, it's a problem. It's also not something that's unexpected. Let's be honest. The VA is really bad at bureaucracy. Yeah, all government organizations are. Just go to the DMV to try and get your license or switch over a car. And Oh, no, you need this, you need that, you need this. I mean, I think about that. When I went to switch my license over, I brought a piece of mail from the electric company 
to my address with my name on it, telling me how much uh, my bill had changed from the last month to the current month. And they said, no, 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 that's not good enough. It needs to be an actual bill. Well, why? It's obviously, I mean, this is the official state gas and electric company. Anyway, that's the problem with bureaucracy, right? Take the VA, and it's not even face-to-face interaction, typically, when it comes to the GI Bill. Yeah, there's a certifying official at your school, but that certifying official, that's not a VA uh, worker. It's not a VA executive who's who's at the VA facilities all day long and dealing with this uh, all day long from the VA's perspective. It's essentially a contractor is what it's like. And now you've got, I mean, if there's 10% of people uh, who are not getting these GI Bill benefits, that could cause a percentage of that 10% to not be able to go to school anymore. If you're not getting paid to go to school, if you're not paying your tuition, then you might just have to get a full-time job and put the school thing off. I would have had to. I know that. If I wasn't getting my GI Bill payments, both for tuition and the living expense, I wouldn't have been able to continue on going to school just on my own dime. There's no way that that would have happened. Maybe if I got some sort of a scholarship or something like that to cover full tuition, and that's possible, you know, if you do well at school. But this is something that was promised to us. And, of course, they're going to be like, what do you you mean? You're not getting everything? Everything's not being given to you? This isn't something that's given to veterans. It's something that was earned by veterans. When you've worn the uniform, you've gotten out with an honorable discharge, you have earned this benefit that was promised to you. It's a fact. That's what it is. And I had to have that discussion with some people when I was in college. Oh, man, you get to go to school for free. No, I don't get to go to school for free. I go to school after paying for it for 13 years of waking up early every day, of deploying, of being away from my friends, being away from my family, moving every couple of years. When you explain that, most people uh, chill out with the whole, oh, you're going to school for free thing. But there are some who don't, and that's okay. Uh, The issue is it's an earned benefit that was promised to us, and now uh, it's just not happening. And again, it's the VA and the bureaucratic issues, the paperwork issues. It goes back to just just like the stupid VA ID card that nobody needs. It's an ID card to get free things on Veterans Day. You know, whoop-de-doo, great, free pancakes. I never get free pancakes on Veterans Day. You see my gut, you know, I don't need pancakes, free or otherwise. But they put this out a year ago. I believe, almost, we're at like 11 months because it was Veterans Day. They put out that this thing was going to be available to you. All you had to do was sign up online. Well, and then the website crashes the very first night that it's up there. Joe Chanelli, executive director of AMVETS, who's on this very show every week on Thursday, he put in a request to get it that very night and still hasn't received his card. Almost a year later. It's insanity is what it is. It's true insanity. This is something that is so simple. You just put in the request, you get, you give them your picture, they just have to print off ID cards. They've only given out one-third of those that were applied for. That's something extremely easy in these ID cards. They can't get that done right. So we're going to let them control the money for going to school on the GI Bill and not expect that to go wrong? Changes were made. Yeah, that's their excuse. Well, recent changes were made, and they made it difficult for us uh, to make sure that people were getting the right money. Oh, When were those changes made? Hmm, Last year. So you're telling me you had a year, one full year, to get these changes implemented and you couldn't do it? And you were telling the schools, well, no, don't certify anyone to go to school until August 1st. Hmm. The schools knew that was going to be a problem. How come the VA didn't know that was going to be a problem? 
That is fascinating. It's also not unexpected. It's just a typical thing, and I don't know why we expect anything different from the VA at this point. And when people who defend the VA, and I do in some ways, I think they give pretty good medical care in most cases. I think they have done some groundbreaking stuff when it comes to research and development. But this aspect of the VA is continually infuriating. They can't get the simplest things done, and it's, it, there's no explanation for it. There isn't any. Are there people who are trying to sabotage the VA from the inside to get it privatized? I don't think we need extra people to do that. I think the VA is doing a pretty darn good job by themselves of sabotaging how things are going over there. From the outside, it might look like there's a bunch of saboteurs running around making everything at the VA not work. But unless that group of saboteurs is the same people that's been there for the last 40, 50, 60 years, I don't think that's the case. I think that it's just incompetence over there from the people who work, again, on the side, the admin side, the bureaucratic side, the IT side. And IT, <laughs> let's talk about military and government IT. If you're a veteran, you've used it before. I've talked before on the show about NMCI, Navy Marine Corps Internet. That's when the Navy and Marine Corps decided that they were going to have basically a global login is essentially all it was. Instead of getting a new email address at every command you went to and having to get a new log on at every command you went to, you had the same one. My email address was like eric.dame at navy.mil or something like that, uh, and it traveled with me wherever I went. Now, the Navy and the Marine Corps know exactly how many people they have, don't they? Oh, yes, they do. They have a pretty good tally on that. I worked in recruiting. I know they know how many people are coming in each year. They certainly know how many people are in. But when it came to the Navy Marine Corps Internet, when it crashed continuously for the first couple of months that it was up there, you know what they said? They said, well, we didn't know how many people were going to be on it. It just overloaded the system. How in the heck do you not know how many people are going to be on a system when you have a full counting of all the people who work for you? Good morning, Dennis. How you doing today? I, it, it's not surprising to me when we see these things, is what I'm saying. And I don't expect anything different out of the VA. When the VA announces new programs, there are two types. There are the medical programs, and for those, I think, well, that's probably going to work out pretty well, and they're probably going to do some great things. When they announce any changes to funding, to the way that they work uh, insurance and paperwork and paying for things, I automatically assume it's going to go poorly. And I have yet to be proven wrong. Good morning, Jupiter. How are you doing today? That's a cool name. All right. Uh, you know, let's move on from the VA because I just, I just, I can't with the VA right now. We're going to get back to them in a moment. But if you can't tell, it, it's just it, the definition of insanity, and this is not the actual definition of insanity, but, you know, it's the one that people have sometimes used, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We've been doing this for how long with the VA? I've only been out for seven years, and it's been happening for those seven years. And I talked to people who were out for the 10 years before that. It's happening over those 10 years. The 10 years before that, the 10 years before that. It's insanity. Good morning, Karina. Hope you're doing well today. So let's move away from the VA for a moment and talk about what's going on over in China with a group of veterans that, you know, they're, they're I guess, I, I don't know. Do you call people from what might be an enemy, I guess, your fellow veterans? I think you kind of have to, in a way. Good morning, Joe. Good to see you. We were just talking about you. There are Chinese People's Liberation Army veterans protesting in massive numbers in Shandong province in China. 
here's what happened. A short time ago, there was a group of elderly veterans that were protesting to basically say that, you know, they, they needed uh, better pensions, I think it was. What the police in Shandong province did is beat the bejesus out of those elderly veterans. Word got around. And you know who's got a massive military and thus a massive veteran community? China. The Chinese People's People's Liberation Army veterans from neighboring provinces from all around that province have now shown up in the town of Pingdu. It's a port city where these uh, elderly veterans were protesting and were beaten. And now you have tens of thousands of veterans protesting there. Uh, The police who were pretty, pretty ballsy when dealing with a small group of little old guys, they now see tens of thousands of old guys wearing camouflage, and they're backing off a little bit in some of the videos that I've seen from over there. They've cordoned off the protest area, which, you know, that's oftentimes what happens with protest areas. Of course, when it happens in China, you can think about things like Tiananmen Square. It's just interesting to see that I think when you think of China, which is, for all intents and purposes, a communist nation. Yes, they have uh, more of a capitalist financial system now. But as far as the governmental organization, the way the police and the military work, and the fact that you can be thrown in prison for, uh, well, if I were doing a show like this and badmouthed the Chinese government, guess who you wouldn't be seeing on air tomorrow? This guy. Uh, it's the way things work over there. And when it works that way, I think we tend to assume everything's going to work the way that that government wants it to. That if there is that threat of you being tossed in jail, you're not going to protest at all. Well, the People's Liberation Army veterans, they've seen some stuff, and they're not particularly worried about that, it would appear. So they are protesting. They're blocking off streets. Uh, They've cordoned off the protest area, and according to the Pingdu Police Department, uh, they don't know what's going on. They have no comment on the situation. This is a... An interesting example of two government organizations, even in a place that is very totalitarian, essentially, going against each other and having these big protests. And the videos that I've seen show the police in full riot gear, but they're actually backing off. One, they're outnumbered by these veterans. Two, uh, what do you do in that situation if you're the police? I mean, these are the heroes of your, uh, you know, the, the People's Republic of China. These are your heroes. These are people who were raised up on a pedestal that served in uniform, and they've showed up to back up their brothers who were beaten up by the police, little old guys who then apparently went to the hospital and weren't even given treatment. They were given, like, Advil. <laughs> if their military is anything like ours, they're probably used to that. What's that? Your, your leg got chopped off? Is it above the knee or below? Below? Oh, here you go. 800 milligrams of Motrin. You'll be fine. Just walk it off. <laughs> Navy corpsman and Army combat medic style, right? Uh, it, it's just it's fascinating to me to see, hey, we've got uh, veterans in another country going against the police who are supposed to be on the same side, but in this case, certainly doesn't look like it, at least in that town. The person that they're specifically looking for is the deputy police chief, who apparently was the one behind the beatings of these uh, these elderly uh, veterans, and, and it caused some some serious issues Serious issues for them. All right, moving back to the states and moving back to, uh, well, it's a VA issue somewhat. Tangentially, it's a VA issue. So down in Lake Charles, Louisiana, Channel 7, the NBC affiliate down there, KPLC, they're giving, they're, they're giving us the story of a local vet, veteran residential facility. It's housed veterans for many years. It won't after this week. The owner of the facility is essentially evicting the veterans. They're going to have to go someplace else. And here's why, before you get angry at this owner, 
He's got an actual reason here. And he says, well, it's I'm losing money on this, and it's a private facility. The VA hasn't been sending us any new veterans. I kind of have to. The residents there, they talked to two of them. One of them uh, seems to have some emotional issues and is saying, you know, he, he can't leave. This is the only town that he knows. He doesn't want to go anywhere else. It's an elderly veteran. You know, he talked about rebuilding a car with his dad back in the 50s. So this is a guy who's up there in years, and certainly moving can be an issue for him. Uh, it's an emotional issue. When I say he has emotional issues, I don't mean medically. I can't say that. But when it comes to this situation, he's very emotional about it. This, this is a little old veteran who's been living in this place for many years. Now he's being told, well, we're going to have to move you to Alexandria, Louisiana. Now, I'm not from Louisiana. If any of you on Facebook Live are, you can tell me how close Alexandria is to Lake Charles. All he knows is it's not Lake Charles. So there are going to be about 21 veterans being sent to other facilities out of town. The place is called Chenault Place, and it will no longer be a veterans care facility. Again, why? Well, because the owner of it says... He's losing more than $10,000 a month, and the VA isn't sending him any new veterans to fill the spaces of those who've left. So there used to be a lot more than 21 veterans. They've passed away. They've moved on, whatever the case may be, and he hasn't gotten any replacements for it. Hey, the guy's not making money. You can't blame him for that. And one of the residents of that facility, that's exactly how he's looking at it. His name is Wade Trahan, and he's one of five who are going to go to Canterbury House in Alexandria, Louisiana. Says he doesn't blame the owner. I don't mind moving. Things happen that way. You just got to go with the flow. They even asked him about his buddy there who's going to go to the same place he is uh, and, and how emotional and upset he was over it. Well, Trahan said, eh, he'll get used to it. Once we get over there and we be with him, he's going to be all calmed down. The way that they wrote that in the story, it sounds like he probably has a thick Cajun accent, which is one of my favorite accents. You ever watch Swamp People where they're killing the alligators? I don't really like seeing the alligators killed, but still, it's an amazing show. Yeah. That's another thing. Why is the VA not sending people there? Well, this may not be entirely their fault, right? What I mean is there are fewer and fewer veterans each and every day. The largest generation of veterans is the World War II vets. The next largest, I believe, is the Korean War vets. Korean War vets, eh, Korean War started mid-50s, so you're looking at 60 plus pushing 80. The youngest Korean War veterans are going to be around 80 years old. The youngest. World War II veterans, they're going to be in their 90s, the youngest ones. Yeah, a bunch of people lied about their age, but the youngest ones that were lying about their age were like 14, 15, something like that. This is maybe not an issue that there is any answer to, like the VA is messing up. I don't necessarily think so. I think the fact that there are fewer veterans, and that's going to continue, will never have hopefully never have a military the size it was in World War II. Because if we do, that means it's really hit the fan, and we don't want that to happen, right? So as there are fewer and fewer veterans, a lot of these facilities that were created are going to have to be shut down in certain places. That's just the way that it works. If you don't have the supply, you don't have the demand. If you have the demand, you don't have the supply. You know how it works. Essentially, this guy's losing $10,000 a month. It's $120,000 a year. So before we jump on the VA for that, let's take a look at the numbers and figure out, well, yeah, there are fewer veterans each and every day just because the largest, two largest generations are leaving us each and every day. There are fewer of them around. The greatest generation, the Korean War generation, the Vietnam generation. Think about that. Vietnam vets. When I was a kid, Vietnam vets, some of them had just gotten home in the last 10 years. Now Vietnam vets are all pushing 70, you know? 
I mean, that's it's it's <laughs> time as a mother, isn't it? Just keeps going on. Doesn't worry about you and what you do. Of course, I think you can um, go after the VA on this GI Bill benefit issue because uh, that's that's really their fault. They had a year to prepare for this. It didn't happen. One last VA thing, and this involves uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who I've actually, I think my most popular tweet of all time was asking her if she really thought that gun silencers, uh, which are actually called suppressors, but that silencers work the way they do in the movies because, boy, she sure seemed to. I don't agree with her on a lot of things, but she's going after the VA on the Blue Water Navy issue, which, of course, involves our Vietnam veteran sailors who were off the coast of Vietnam, don't qualify for Agent Orange benefits, despite the fact that they're clearly suffering from a lot of the same issues that veterans uh, who are boots on the ground suffered from. They're not qualifying for it. The VA says, well, there's no way to prove it. We can't get a water sample from 50 years ago. No, you can't, and that's kind of your fault. Isn't that what you were supposed to do? Well, Senator Gillibrand is one of the people really pushing for it, and I applaud her for that because it's a group of veterans who has been underserved, and remember how poorly they were treated back then in the Vietnam era, and we're kind of still doing it now with this Blue Water Navy Agent Orange issue. And I'm glad to see that some of the politicians uh, on both sides are pushing for this, even though the VA is pushing back. It's one of those big things we're going to have to keep an eye on. Keeping an eye on a lot this morning. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Lauren Hope. She's an Army spouse and the founder of a veteran, well, sorry, the founder of an Army spouse-owned business, Hope Design Limited and ShopMilitary.org. She's got two things going on. We're going to talk to her about that and how the second lady of the United States came to be wearing one of her brooches. Brooches. Brooches? Brooches? Brooches, I think, is what it is. In the interview, I think I get that wrong as well a couple of times, too. Also got Justin Brown of Hill Vets, Tom Porter of IAVA. Morning Briefing is back right after this. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And I'll tell you why we do it. It's because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn that uniform or knows what it's like to be very closely related to someone who did. Just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken that uniform off for the last time. The difficulties that can come with post-military life for our service members, their families, their children, their parents, really everybody that's connected to a veteran, there's changes that come along when that time and service comes to an end, and we are working diligently every day to get you the information that you need to live your best veteran life. So go to ConnectingVets.com 50, 60 times a day, and be sure to follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Speaking of military spouses, our next guest happens to fit that qualification. She is Lauren Hope, and she is the founder of Hope Design Limited, and we're going to talk to her about her story right now. Good morning, Lauren. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's nice to see you again. Of course, we met down at the Military Influencer Conference in Orlando, and uh, when you said you were going to be in the D.C. area, well, we just had to have you in studio. We're going to talk about the beautiful jewelry that you make, how and why you got into that, and how a very well-known known person uh, came to be in possession of one that was seen on her uh, jacket recently. But before we do that, let's just talk about Lauren Hope and talk about your family. So as I mentioned, Army spouse. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing that job for? Because it is a job. It is a job. Absolutely. So I'm oh, 11 years in now. Well, it's a is good it? long time. Absolutely. So we always have to do the double math because we did the courthouse <laughs> wedding before a deployment ah. and then the big wedding afterwards. So always <laughs> counting the counting back. <laughs> when you 
basically said, I do, and Mm -hmm. uh, realized you were marrying not just uh, a gentleman, but also marrying a soldier and the army. Uh, What did you expect, and how has it turned out in comparison to what you expected when you looked at the possibility of being a military spouse? You know how you see those six-frame cartoons where it's like, here's what the world thinks, what I think, and what actually happens? It's a little (laughs) bit like that. (laughs) Well, has it been better or worse than you thought it would be, or is it kind of like a mixed bag? It's just been different. You know, everyone has a very romantic idea. They think of, you know, kissing the sailor in World War II at the end, you know, just something romantic and all the love notes. And, well, it is that. There's a lot more grit to it as well. Mm -hmm. But with that grit comes the the valuable lifetime friendships and the connections that I've made. And in 11 years, I'm imagining a lot of connections, probably quite a few duty stations. So Mm -hmm. uh, where have you guys been during those 11 years? Where has the family settled down and then picked up and settled down again? Oh, my goodness. Let's see. Fort Stewart, Georgia, Fort Knox, Kentucky, Fort Hood, Texas, Ohio State University, West Point, New York, and currently... Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. Not because someone's in prison there, right? Oh, thank goodness, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's the reason you don't want to go to Leavenworth. Of course, that's where uh, the baddest of the bad go, but also some pretty good people out there because it's an active Army military installation. There's good Absolutely. things going on. And what has that been like, the moving? I mean, I moved seven times. I think we did the math in 13 years, but mm-hmm. I did it by myself. I didn't do it with a family. And I think that's probably, uh, it's not even probably, it's definitely a lot easier when it's just a single guy moving around. What's it like having to move your family every couple of years? And, and have you struggled with that? Oh, we've absolutely struggled. I feel every move, there's a few more cogs thrown into the situation. There's a couple other things spinning. So, you know, originally it was just my husband and I, and then we had our two boys and all the logistics, it's, it's stressful. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly stressful. Um, and it was a fun adventure at first because we were newlyweds. And gosh, you'll do anything for the person you love, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, particularly our move from Texas to Ohio, I had a son who was less than two and a son who was three weeks old. Oh, boy. And we didn't have a new address yet, but we were moving wherever it was. So that, uh, it's tough. But... It's- it's it's difficult, but it's something that you've got to do, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like you can just say, ah, we're not doing that anymore. We're done with this. I mean, I guess you can if your contract is up and you mm-hmm. can move on, but sounds like your husband enjoys his time in the Army, right? No, oh, he was born for this. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. One of the things that comes along with that, of course, is he's got a job waiting for him everywhere that you go. Mm-hmm. You picking up and moving, unless you happen to work for a company or an organization that has places all around the the nation and the world even, it can be a little bit more difficult. How has that aspect of life been for you, the professional aspect of life, finding uh, the right work for you? I know what you do now, and we'll talk about that, but I, I'm getting probably going to make a pretty good guess here that like many other spouses we've talked to, it, it was difficult trying to find work. So employment has been by far my largest struggle through this entire journey. I started as a professional chef. I used to work for the Ritz-Carlton. I'm a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. I even competed on Top Chef. Wow. However, held wonderful jobs while we were in Savannah, but then we moved to Fort Knox, Kentucky. And believe it or not, they do not build Ritz-Carlton's next to the training fields. <laughs> but So I became a shift manager at Panera because that was the finest restaurant in town. Wow. And then we went to Fort Hood, and the the only job I could find available was decorating cakes in the commissary. And as you can imagine, that was eating a slice of humble pie because it was giant steps backward in my career. I'd worked so hard to get to the top. 
but to lose my own personal identity through all these travels, um, supporting my husband and watching his career grow, it's it's personally incredibly hard, and you feel like you're you're the one who's left behind. Yeah, so. we've talked to several other spouses, uh, men and women, who ended up doing work that they were incredibly overqualified for. Some because they worked in an industry like, let's say, uh, law, the mm-hmm. legal profession, where you you have to pass the state bar. I mean, there are require- different requirements for each state, so it's not like you can just be a lawyer in Maine one day and then a lawyer in New Mexico the next. There's a whole process that sometimes can take the entire time that you'll be stationed there. So these are difficulties that the I think the average person, and even me when I was serving, I never thought about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty big aspect of life for you. Absolutely. Well, and you brought up if there maybe you're in a profession where the jobs go across state to state, mm-hmm. uh, even licensing is a problem. Like our school teachers right now, in order to be certified in one state and then move to another, hundreds of dollars and lots of time uh, need to be invested every time you go to a new state. We're only living at our current duty station for a year, so there are many people who are going to be unemployed for the year mm. simply because they can't get that licensing. Is that something that within the spouse community out at like Leavenworth, where you are now in your previous duty stations, is that something that you found to be uh, a relatively common issue between the, uh, the spouses who are supporting their spouse but having difficulty themselves? Overwhelmingly common. It really is. I, I, I would say a vast majority of people I know are going to be unemployed this year at this particular duty station. I, I know that employers can't say that they don't hire you for being a military spouse, um, but it's absolutely the case. They can see it when they walk in the door. Yeah. You're overqualified. I mean, I've even been known to dumb my resume down to get jobs. And I feel like that's something I should never have to do. Uh, it's not. And that's one of those interesting things that you bring up that we've talked about on the show many times before where they can't come out and say, like, we're not going to hire this Lauren Hope. She's going to be gone in a year. Why mm-hmm. would we hire her when there's someone who's maybe not quite as qualified but is going to be here in the long run? They can't say that, but you can't stop them from thinking it. Mm-hmm. And you can't stop them from saying, well, we're not going to hire you. Why not? Just not the right fit for the job. Why not? Just not. They don't really need to divulge their reasoning behind it. So it's one of those uh, you know, optically things. Uh, the optics of it are like, okay, it looks nice that they're not, not hiring you because you're a veteran or a military spouse or whatever. But is that the reality? But you know what they're missing out on? A lot. They are missing out on the Mavericks. I mean, we can make everything out of nothing. We've had to move over and over and reinvent ourselves, reinvent our family where we live. We have to reinvent our tribe so we can do it. I know we can. They, the military spouses are the the unsung hero, and the, the you know the, the the troop goes into work, but someone else has to sign all the kids up for school and the doctor's appointments and the dentist and re-enroll in all of the things and, and just get everyone back into a normal normal group. Um, If we can do that year after year and not break our spirit, but come out stronger on the other side, you have no idea what we can do for your business. That's very true. But the truth is, of course, that it's difficult for uh, those jobs to to last because you are going to move. As you said, you're in Leavenworth for a year Mm -hmm. and then on to who knows where. And, you know, I mean, (laughs) yeah, there's probably a McDonald's in both places, but most companies are fairly localized. One way around that, and we've talked to several people about this, is starting your own business that you can bring with you. And that's what you've done. We're, of course, speaking to Lauren Hope, who's the founder of Hope Design Limited. So first off, let's just talk about what exactly your business is. What do you do at Hope Design? I handcraft jewelry. It is of military theme, both vintage pieces as well as modern pieces. 
and I make pieces to support our military community. We have expanded into patriotic jewelry for all the amazing red-blooded Americans out there that want to support us. We appreciate you. And, and this is the job that's moved with me. Uh, it's fortunately grown enough that I can put my money where my mouth is and hire other military spouses to help me in the operations. And we've created jobs that can travel with them, too, so we can all work remotely together. Of course, as you said, you're a trained chef. Now, mm-hmm. I, I imagine there are some similarities. Having watched some of those uh, baking and cooking shows, there's a lot of design that goes into making, let's say, a cake or presentation of food. But were you ever trained as a jewelry jeweler or jewelryer, whatever the case may be? <laughs> uh, my mouth is not working properly at the moment. But were you ever trained in this or was it just something you picked up as a hobby? I, it had been a hobby since I was a little girl. And when the craft of cooking uh, left my life over time, I mean, I still enjoy it, but we do it at home. It's not the scale. I needed to keep my hands busy. And so I'm completely self-taught. It's amazing what you can find on YouTube nowadays. And uh, just asking questions and seeking out mentors is how I've succeeded. How did it happen that you decided to do this as a business? Because it's a big leap going Mm -hmm. from a hobby that you enjoy to actually making it your profession. When was that decision made and how did it come about? So my youngest son was three weeks old and I'm sure it was in a a, uh, sleep deprived days that I looked at my husband and said, um, so I have this idea and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow a little bit of money. I'm going to start this business. And uh, it's, it's an ongoing joke between us. They said, I don't think that's such a good idea, (laughs) but he humored me. Good man for it. And uh, the joke to this day is, is whatever his gut instinct is about the jewelry business, I just go completely against the grain and it works out incredibly well. So he is the best business partner I could ever have on that note. (laughs) That's sometimes the best way for things to go. If you have someone who's a sounding board, my mother, who will listen to this show, has a very good friend who when they travel together... Whatever direction her friend says she thinks they should turn, my mother turns the opposite way, and it works out because the internal compass of her friend is horrible. And I got to actually witness that when I was stationed in Italy, and it took them, I don't know, six hours to go someplace 45 minutes away and get back. I'm probably exaggerating that, but that's how it felt to me. So when it came to producing a product, how did you pick, uh, you know, like the military-themed and the patriotic-themed uh, uh, jewelry that you do? The, uh, the Is it brooch or brooch? Brooch. Brooch. Okay, mm-hmm. I never... That's all right. I never wear one, so how would I know? But when you decide, how did you decide on that particular design for the brooches? Was it something that friends had seen before that you had made and they asked about? Or how did you come up with the idea to focus on that specifically? So the tradition of the brooch in the military is actually generations deep. Mm. Um I've been working with a gal, Charlene Rushton, where her, she did it for over 30 years, and um, I ended up uh, purchasing her business and carrying it on. Um, so the, the way the brooches got started for me is my husband taught military history at uh, the United States Military Academy, and so he and his friends are heavily into military history. Makes sense. And in the collector's world, the pieces, when they break, the, the insignia, uh, Unfortunately, there's scrap in that world. And mm. so they started collecting for me. And that's how I came across all these amazing centerpieces for the brooches was giving history new life. That is amazing. And as a big history fan myself and a history buff, uh, seeing things like what you've been able to do with these, uh, they're just cool, first off. Of course, when I say the, the brooches, uh, brooch, 
Brooch. I see. I'm going to keep getting it wrong. It's oh, okay. it's okay. The brooches that you made. That's not the only thing that you made. Is that? But that's what you started out doing was the brooches? That's what I started doing. And it, um, it was a very steady snowball from there. And mm. so we've gone everything where I'm now licensed. You mentioned you're from Connecticut. Uh, the Waterbury Button Company oh, okay. makes all of the uniform buttons in Connecticut. And they were just tickled to death with the jewelry. So they've opened an account for me now. And so I work with both new and vintage buttons all the way back to the Civil War. Oh, wow. Right? And I get to travel and collect all these things now in all the different places I go. And um, necklaces, bracelets, earrings, but I also take care of the guys, too. We've got the cufflinks, the tie tacks, lapel pins. That's like a big golf. thing, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that's we've we've had a, a previous guest on the show who started off their company making just lapel pins because mm-hmm. they realized, you know, for the veteran and military member out there, you can't. For most of us, I can, but most people can't show up to work with like, you know, the patriotic T-shirt on or the veteran T-shirt. It's hard to do that if you're working in in more of a professional environment. Uh, So have you found that that's the main audience for your products is those who want something uh, a little bit more upscale, I would say, than just, you know, the the, maybe a pin you're going to buy at a at a gift shop or something like that? Well, so my jewelry tends to be worn in two places. Yes, the upscale, the military ball, the 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 founders dinner, the something of that sort, but also game day. I mean, you know, I I did come from the land of army, so army, <laughs> navy, and air force. Uh, everybody likes their game day gear. So that's very true. And of course, as I mentioned, the brooches were where you uh, brooches were where you started off, but you now have added a whole bunch more products to the line. I'm looking at bracelets, necklaces, as you mentioned, the tie tags, lapel pins. How did you know as a small business owner when it was the right time to expand what you were doing? Because we've also talked to some people who had businesses fail because they went too big, too fast, and, mm-hmm. and too hard. How did you know for Hope Design when was the right moment to do that? Well, I've always been told that an overnight success is 15 years in the making. And I'm only about five years in on all this. So it really was a very gradual grow. Um, every time a client made a request, it's like, well, I, I do have the supplies to do that. Let's add that to the lineup. And um, it started with the West Point Spouses Gift Shop um, reaching out and saying, hey, we like your product. We'd like to carry that. And so one gift shop led to another, which led to an expansion in line. It was just a very organic growth. Um, Do you think that's the key, letting it go organically and not trying to force the issue because you believe in your product so much? Do you think you could believe in it too much where you go, everybody's going to want this. I'll make a million of them. And then you've got a million, I don't know, uh, mm-hmm. Coast Guard tie tax and, and no one buys the one million. There are just fewer Coast Guard members and veterans out there. Do you think that's an issue that you had to take into account when expanding your product line? So the way the product is made to this day, I've already, um, I'll say, handled that issue. <laughs> I still handcraft every single piece almost to order. Wow. So when you order it, I am making it for you. And so that way I don't have the inventory on hand because guess what? We're going to move sometime in the next six months or year or two years. And I can't move all that inventory with me. The army is terrible enough with moving my stuff that I would like to keep it in pristine condition. So I keep all the supplies on hand. And that's, that's what I do when my little ones go to sleep now. Well, there you go. And that's, that's also got to be an issue where as a business owner and a parent and an army spouse, those are really three separate jobs with Mm -hmm. three separate sets of requirements. I think a lot of people would ask, when do you find time to do that? I mean, you're hand making all of these. When and how do you get that done? Oh, uh, (laughs) through dedication and love. I also don't watch that much TV, sadly. But, uh, but, you know, it's it. 
it's what keeps me going. It's it's my conversation piece. When my friends come over, I'm still working and making. Or if the kids are at the park, I have I have pieces with me. It's just part of my life. That's the key, finding something that you enjoy doing also. Mm-hmm. I, are there days where you go like, oh, man, I don't want to make another cuff link or another brooch? <laughs> do, you, do you have those days, and how do you get through them if you do? I, I would say I, I'm human. Of course I have those <laughs> days. Absolutely. However, uh, I, I believe it was Tony Perez when we were at Mick who had said, uh, you know, the, the business scale is up and down and up and down. So for every low I have in the I just can't do this anymore, there seems to be a, a, a doubled high. So it's... It keeps propelling me forward. If there are, you know, military spouses out there who hear your story, see your product and go, mm-hmm. wow, that's that's the kind of thing that I'd like to find for myself. What do you think the first step that they should take is when exploring the possibility of starting their own small business? Well, uh, being honest, going to shopmilitary.org is this beautiful tool I'm creating to help network to the people who want to start. Um I've been in business for five years fully, and I'm only now discovering all of these amazing resources that are out there that I wish were out there five years ago. Or, well, they were out there. I didn't know they were out there. And so my goal is to help people who are just starting to get that boost to find the resources that they need, in addition to getting their business out there in front of people who can support them. Of course, Getting the product, the right product, finding the right product, finding the audience, uh, marketing, that's a difficult thing to do. You, though, just got some uh, some pretty good marketing in the form of the second lady of the United States of America, Mrs. Karen Pence, who was seen at Fort Carson, Colorado, wearing one of your brooches. How did that come to be? I mean, you can't pay the second lady to wear <laughs> something. That goes against all sorts of rules. But how did it come to be that she was wearing a, a Hope Designs brooch? Well, um, so I have a relationship with the Armed Forces Insurance Military Spouse of the Year program. Right. I was the United States Military Academy 2017 Spouse of the Year. And through that, um, through that award, I met so many amazing people to include the they, – they have branch winners each year, so the top Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, and Coast Guard spouses, right? And um, – collectively the branch winners that year were meeting with Mrs. Pence and wanted to present her with a meaningful gift. And so they selected one of my brooches as that gift. And when they went to the White House, they presented Mrs. Pence with the brooch. And so that happened in May earlier in the year. And you never know if something's going to come up or not. It's a compliment enough for someone to think that my jewelry was worthy. Hmm. And and here comes Mrs. Pence announcing her new military spouse under an unemployment initiative, and she is wearing my jewelry. And that was a real moment in my life. Um, I had a friend call me. I was actually getting ready to drive on post, and she said, are, are you watching Fox and Friends right now? Or do you <laughs> see this? She's on national television wearing your jewelry. And um, I was speechless at first, um, but much to the dismay of the gate guard that I then met right after being given this news, I believe he might have PTSD after me. <laughs> I had the happy screams. I was so excited. I had to shout it to the world. So um, it was it was something special. Not, not everyone gets to have that experience. Um, but through that, I realized what a compliment this was to my business and how it had given me such visibility in the world. Um, wouldn't it be nice if I could share that same visibility with other military spouses? 
And that's what you're doing with mm-hmm. the, uh, can you give the website again? Yes, it's shopmilitary.org. And that's an organization basically bringing together people who are in a similar situation like you, small business owners, veterans, spouses, and so on, to have kind of like a, a marketplace where they can let people know about their stuff. And as as uh, the, the vice president's wife wearing your brooch shows, uh, those connections can be amazing and they can lead to amazing things like that great moment in your life. Absolutely. And so with shopmilitary.org, what it is is a free directory we would like to introduce America to all of these hardworking military spouse and veteran-owned businesses. People are welcome to come and list their military businesses with us for free. There's no charge for it. And then we're working on a monthly newsletter to send out to America. So anybody that would like to support the military, you know, the yard signs are great. It's a lovely sentiment. But this is a truly tangible way that you can support the military by supporting a military spouse it, happy wife, happy life, right? You know there's <laughs> truth in this, right? Uh, yes, there is. I, I mean, this really is a matter of um, mission readiness because the military puts so much money into training their troops. But yet this is a grueling lifestyle. It's not for everybody. And I, I know how just I felt like a hollow shell of the person I used to be at many times. And I know I'm not alone in that feeling. And yet entrepreneurship is what put me back on my feet and gave me my spark again. And it is what has allowed our family to continue in the military. If you were to make one recommendation to the fellow military spouses out there who who are feeling like you just said you did, one thing uh, that you would like them to know, what would that be? Find your tribe. You are not alone in this, no matter how Uh, lonely it might feel you are not alone Um, reach out to me I'm here it it is it is these groups that I've networked with the Milspo project the the uh, military spouse advocacy network there's so many good groups that are trying to bring everyone together because we we travel so often you lose the friends right Mm. Um, you do have friends in this so reach out and find your people and if people want to reach out to you or if they want to check out those brooches or brooches, uh, there's different pronunciation. In Connecticut, <laughs> we call them brooches. That, in my defense, I don't know if that's true or not. Probably not. But if they want to find out about your products, check them out. Maybe go and grab one. Where can they go to find out about Hope Designs? And where can they also go? You've already said the website, obviously. ShopMilitary.org is a good place to check out. But for your products and to get in touch with you, how do they go about that? Uh, HopeDesignLTD.com. Say, come join me there. I'm on all social media. I would love to have you. And as a trained chef, uh, you know, if they're looking for a good recipe for something, (laughs) you might be the first to reach out to as well. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com, Tuesday edition. Coming up, we're going to talk to Hill Vets founder Justin Brown about the latest Capitol Hill news as it relates to veterans. We're going to talk VA. We're going to talk the midterm elections and oh, so much more. Coming up right after this. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is the slogan. It's what we're doing, and you know where we're doing it. On ConnectingVets.com and, of course, on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. What are you going to find on those social media accounts? Well, the things that you find on those platforms. 
Go to Instagram, you're going to find pictures, funny little memes, things like that. Go to Facebook, you're going to find, well, the Facebook Live video that we do at the start of this show every day, 7.15, when we're actually recording the first segment of the show. You can see us live in studio. And then, of course, you're going to find our stories on there. You're going to find polls, all sorts of good stuff. Again, at Connecting Vets, that's the social media account that you want to be following to get all your veteran-related news, information, and benefits little click on your mouse or tap on your phone will get you that much closer to living your best veteran life. Our next guest has been on the show several times representing Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And he's joining us now because, well, they had the day off on Monday. One, it was a holiday, of course. Columbus Day took place on Monday. Also, they were recovering from their Storm the Hill event that took place in Washington, D.C. last week. And Tom Porter, he was a big part of that. Tom, how are you doing this morning? Outstanding, Eric. Good to be here with you. And uh, have you recuperated and recovered from uh, all the energy expended during the Storm the Hill event? Oh, yeah. It's a lot of <laughs> lot, a lot of fun. Doesn't take much to recuperate from that. Uh, just to put my foot up for a few minutes. and uh, uh, But really appreciated having all of our members in town. We do this several times a year. Our, our quarterly Storm the Hill uh, focused on, on professional development of our members from all around the country. Um, not only just post, not, not only post 9-11 veterans, but from other areas as well. Uh, we also uh, go to Capitol Hill and spend a lot of time wor- working with members of Congress and their staffs on, on promoting our top priorities in Washington, D.C. Of course, there was a lot going on during the Storm the Hill event. One that we went over for, I know a lot of media and a lot of tourists, a lot of people noticed it. There was a, a flag planting over by the Washington Memorial. Can you tell us a little bit about that event and how it went? We talked to Melissa Bryant before it took place. How did it end up, uh, up going over there? It went amazing, Eric. A powerful, uh, powerful event. Uh, it addresses the crisis of veteran suicide. As you may know, 20 veterans per day uh, die by suicide, and that is a horrible statistic. Uh, in recent uh Survey released, survey data released by the VA just a few days ago uh, showed that although the overall veteran suicide rate is slightly decreasing, it is dramatically uh, increasing for younger veterans, 18 to 34. Whereas since uh, in the previous 10 years, uh, the uh, suicide rates increased 26% and an astounding 10% in just between 2015 and 2016. So yeah. huge. And so what we did to draw more public attention to this crisis is we went down to the mall with our members, with our friends we invited, and we planted 5,520 American flags down at the Washington Monument. Uh, and that's to depict uh, the amount of veteran and military suicides that have occurred just since the beginning of this year. So it was an amazing event. A lot of public stopped by to ask questions. A lot of friends joined us, and uh, it was a great spectacle to draw attention to it. Of course, we're only three-quarters of the way through 2018. I mean, that number is just for three-quarters of the year. There's still, uh, unfortunately, 25% of the year left to go, and there will be more veteran suicides there. Of course, putting the the flags down, one for each, uh, visually – 
What was that like? I mean, you were out there. I didn't get a chance to go out and see it, but when you're there in person and looking at those flags out there, uh, what feeling did you know Tom Porter, of one of my fellow U.S. Navy sailors, have when looking at that? Well, it's an amazing sight. If, if you don't know what's going on in the mall and you walk up, you're just going to see a sea of red, white, and blue waving. And, and not knowing what it is, you probably feel a profound sense of uh, patriotism. But when they start asking questions to find out what that represents, it, it, it causes a lot of deep reflection. And uh, one one uh, woman passing by saw this, and she says, oh, um, so that's the amount of people who have died by suicides since 9-11? And one of our, our staffers says, no, ma'am, that's, uh, that's just this year since January 1st. So it really knocks them back really uh, causes them to pay attention to the problem, we hope. Um, we did uh, cause a lot of conversation to begin. We hope continues. And, of course, uh, you know, this is uh, an issue that a lot of people don't understand. Well, if the suicide rate is down, how come it's rising with the younger veterans? That has to do with the overall number of veterans. Remember, more people served during World War II and Korea than at any other point in American history those generations are now leaving us. They are getting older. Again, if you're a World War II veteran, you are 90 years old or so at the youngest. If you're a Korea War veteran, you're about 80 at the youngest. Vietnam veterans are getting up there in age. These massive numbers of veterans are leaving us. So that's why the overall rate is going down. But still, the rate among the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans and, and Gulf War One veterans, that's going up. And uh, it's something that we've talked to a lot of people about. There's a lot of work going on. Of course, the fact that the, the info is two years old, we talked to Melissa about that last year. How do you view that? The fact that we're the most recent data that the VA apparently can give is from two years ago, so we don't even know. It could be worse than that right now. Right. We'd all like it to come a lot quicker, of course. Um I do know since IAVA, we do our own annual member survey, and we just have a very small team. So we know how, how long it takes to collect the data and process it and determine what it means. Um, VA is a lot bigger than us, of course, and so uh, we'd like them to be able to, to, to get it quicker. But 2016, that's the most recent data that they have, and that's what we're going to have to deal with. So we hope that things are have been trending a little bit more due to some advances in, in uh, public awareness and treatment at the VA. Of course, we are speaking with Tom Porter, who's the legislative director of IAVA. I don't think I gave your uh, title initially, but one of the other things that takes place during Storm the Hill is those IAVA members who come to D.C. get to meet some of their legislators. How did that go last week? How was the interaction between the IAVA stormers and the uh, the, the legislators on Capitol Hill? Well, first, what I'd like to point out is is that we wish we wish we would have had a lot more attendance at our event uh, by members of Congress. Um, but with all of the um, concern voiced by members of Congress for veteran suicide in hearings and other and other venues, uh, only one member of Congress uh, attended. That was Congressman Mark Takano of Riverside, California. He's the second uh, uh, Democrat on the House Veterans Affairs Committee. We did invite all members of Congress. Uh, however, most uh, House members had already gone home. And the Senate uh, wasn't uh, feeling too enthusiastic about uh, leaving their offices during such a controversial time last week. So happy to have Congressman Takano out there. Uh, after that event, we did a quick change. A lot of our team uh, went down to Capitol Hill, and we started meeting with our members' House and Senate member offices. And so that was, uh, that was important. That's kind of upsetting and kind of uh, disgraceful, really that they wouldn't go out to that event. And yeah, it was a difficult time last week for them. 
you know what? That's why they get paid the big, big bucks, and most of them are getting a pension for the rest of their lives after they serve, and they couldn't be bothered to come out because someone might yell at them. Uh, hopefully, those people would back off at an event like what what you were holding. That's the one thing. Probably not. I mean, based on what we saw in the city uh, in D.C. last week, right. nobody we was had backing off of anything. Tremendous attention. We had four television cameras. We had connecting vets uh, yep. So uh, and, and some other reporters there that report on military and veteran uh, issues. So really significant event uh, for members of Congress to miss. Uh, but we're not going to give up. We're going to keep trying to engage. Um, it was also really important and really productive for our members, because not only are we doing these storm the hills to, to advance IAVA's priorities, a significant uh, a portion of this storm the hill is for professional development of our members. Um, you know, we live here in, in D.C. We talk and live politics all the time, Derek. Uh, but many of our members from across the country have never set foot in our nation's capital or especially on Capitol Hill. So in advance of all these meetings and, and uh, our work on the mall, we invite them in for a full day of training on advocacy, on our priorities, how to communicate them, how to, how to communicate on behalf of your own interests as a veteran, and then we begin the rest of the week. So significant benefit for our members. They all left on a really, really positive note, having felt that they accomplished a great deal. So that's really significant. Uh, also, what was important uh, that we did this time is, is although many of the members have, had gone for, uh, for until through the elections, we met with both the Republican and, and Democrat staff separately on, on the House Veterans and Senate Veterans Affairs Committees, where we could bring all of our members in, sit down with several of their senior staff, where we can have more of a roundtable-type discussion, really productive. And I'd like to really thank uh, the uh, Senator Tester, um, Senator Isaacson, uh, Chairman Rowe, and, and Congressman Walls for having all their staff being so attentive to uh, IAVA members during their storm the hill. We're speaking with Tom Porter, legislative director of IAVA, who just completed their storm the hill event. This is the the fall storm the hill event. You guys actually do more than one a year, don't you? We try to do four. Four. So that's one a quarter, basically. Yep. Wow. See, that's the way to do it. Um, you know, what do you think that you, you said that they all left uh, feeling like they accomplished something? What do you think they did accomplish? You know, from your perspective, what do you think was accomplished at the Storm the Hill event beyond the great training that they received on how to make a difference when speaking to legislators and politicians beyond planting those flags? Overall, what do you think the the IAVA crew that came to town got out of it? Right. They were empowered. Uh, they not only got the professional development on it, but, but what comes out of that also is they go back to their homes and their communities with an enthusiasm uh, and motivation to go out and talk to other elected officials because the suicide problem that we're talking about, it's not just solved in Washington, uh, it's solved in the communities. And it requires leaders like our members to go back and, and keep that conversation going. So community and local governments also look at this something as their responsibility. And uh, so very, very, very productive. And also on Capitol Hill, they're used to seeing uh, uh, the, the Washington representatives of the, of the veterans groups. Um, that's important. But it's also important for them to hear hear directly from the real people, our members that don't live and breathe this Washington stuff. Uh, so they got to hear the, the stories, uh, tear-jerking at times, but really valuable information. We were told so by, by committee and, and, and congressional staff. I think sometimes for the politicians and for uh, really anybody who's part of the, uh, the inner D.C. workings, it can often be 
you know, a story that you hear, you're not seeing it right in front of you all the time. And then you have someone coming in from you know, wherever around the country, Kansas, California, New York, Florida, Oregon, doesn't matter. You see these things are actually happening out there, and it's not this kind of discussion that you're having politically. These are real people who are dealing with these issues. How much of an effect do you think that can have on those national-level politicians and their staffs? Well, I can, I can tell you that visibly it's it's uh, visibly shook some of them, and I think that's important because in Washington you talk about the suicide numbers, the suicide rates, and they're faceless. But when you have our members – so many of them that have experienced uh, friends uh, and fellow service members uh, die by suicide or, or contemplate suicide. Now, just want to remind you, out of our membership, 65% of our members know someone that has attempted suicide. Mm. And 58% know someone that has died by suicide. And when you have our members come into those congressional offices that are used to just looking at the numbers and they tell them stories about how their friend died, that's 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 really shocking and, and rightly so. So we hope that this kind of encourages them and keeps our feet to the fire to to not only uh, a push for this on the national level, but also encourage communities to to uh, look at solutions at the local level. We've talked to siblings of people who've taken their own lives, the parents. I mean, Major General Graham, we talked to, lost one son to an IED, another one to suicide. And it is truly something that's affected such a vast number of people. I know people who've tried to kill themselves. I've, I've not had any of my close friends take their own lives, but uh, I've had some try. And I've had some people that I did know, uh, not all that well, who have taken their own lives. It's really affected so many of us who served uh, in the military, dating all the way back to World War II. I mean, this is a continuing issue uh, that seems to be getting a little bit worse, at least as far as the rate goes. As we said, 10% uh, rise from 2015 to 2016. We don't know about 2016 to 2017 yet. Did it go up even higher than that? It's hard to say. All I can say is I've heard a lot more stories. Uh, you know, it's, the, the tide doesn't seem to be stemming despite all the work that's going on. But that doesn't mean the work stops. Now, Tom, for IAVA members or someone who's thinking about joining IAVA, which, of course, is free, they can just go to IAVA.org and sign up and you don't have to pay dues or anything like that. If someone is an IAVA member and is interested in the Storm the Hill event, is there a specific thing they need to do to be considered for it, or do they just get themselves down here? What's the process of it? Well, the way that it works for our Storm the Hill participants is, is first you have to join. And you don't have to have been a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, we accept veterans of all eras, family members, and supporters. You can all join for free. And so that's an important first step. And then when it gets closer to our Storm the Hill, we send out an email to our, our entire membership list uh, telling them the dates of our next Storm the Hill and inviting them to apply. And so that's how we recruit our Storm the Hill members and we, we choose a mix of, uh, of our members that have done this before and those that have, have never even thought about this thing in the past. So it's, so it's a really good process, and we, we, we tend to get a pretty good turnout on this. Yeah, it's something that I think more people should be wanting to take part in. I know there's already a lot that are, but if they knew about what they get to do at these events when they come to Washington, D.C., it would be huge for them. Yeah, you're right. Not only do you get to take part in these enormous events on on, on the mall, uh, we do press conferences often like we did, did on, on the mall at the Washington Monument with the flags to highlight suicide, but we we'd give the training in, in congressional relations 
and how do you advocate for, for on your behalf and on behalf of your other uh, fellow veterans. But we also go in and talk to senior uh, officials within the VA. Like we went in and, and talked with uh, Dr. Stone, uh, who heads up the Veterans Health Administration within the VA in charge of all veterans health care. That was significant for many of our members. But we also sat down with uh, uh, retired General David Petraeus, who commanded all forces in Iraq and Afghanistan at one time, along with Central Command. He's on our board. Uh, he's an important mentor, and uh, he's a leader in our fight uh, to address the, uh, the other massive problem of exposure to burn pits and other airborne toxins. Uh, so powerful experiences by all of our members that participate in this. We'd encourage everybody out there to, to join IAVA and apply to our next storm the hill. I actually met General Petraeus in Afghanistan, and it turned out that his photographer, despite being an Army general, Navy chief, who I went to A school with, uh, Treadwell, was his photographer over oh. there. One of those interesting little com- uh, connections that was made. But, yeah, it really sounds like a terrific event that that is nothing but a positive. Again, as you said, would have liked to have seen uh, more of our representatives out there uh, at your event when it takes place. Yeah, they had a lot going on last week. And, yes, the protesters were kind of... Uh, nonstop, didn't matter. They were going to people's houses, restaurants. They probably would have continued right on to this if people did show up, uh, which could have taken away from what was going on for sure and become the headline. But, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see more interaction from them uh, or more of them showing up to things like that in the future because it is important. And when they show up with those big names and they've got the the state and the party letter, whatever, next to them, that's that's a headline right there. Anytime those people show up to something like that, but again, thank you to uh, Representative Mark Takano of California. He was the only one who showed up there, which that's kind of upsetting. I mean, t- the the senators had a lot going on last week. The House of Reps, well, a lot of them, I guess, are not in town right now. But it seems like there should have been more than just one over right, there. Right. Even even local members, uh, there was quite a few, and they're all up for uh, for reelection in a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, so missed opportunity, but we're going to stay at it. Yeah, that's all you can do. And, of course, what Tom Porter does at IAVA is focuses on legislative issues. Uh, Moving on from the Storm the Hill event, what's on the docket legislatively that you think is going to be of interest to the veteran community and of importance to us as well? Well, as you know, they're pretty much done for the year. They've accomplished something so far. And and to be fair, kudos to, to, to Congress so far because they've, They've uh, passed government funding for most of the government way ahead of what they have been doing in, in recent years. And so they've still got some work to do. They, they uh, uh, took care of the, the defense and veterans funding, um, but there's still some funding that they have to pass to, to avoid a partial government shutdown uh, come December following the elections. So that has to happen. Um, but we're, we're still pressing on to finish strong getting additional co-sponsors for our top legislative priorities like the Burn Pits Accountability Act, which is which is huge right now. Over 135 co-sponsors from both parties. Cannabis. Uh, so many of our members are talking about medicinal cannabis access for our members, uh, and we started diving into this even more so last week. We did a full-page ad in the Washington Post drawing attention to the difficulty that veterans have in finding medicinal cannabis. And so Burn Pits... Uh, cannabis uh, legislation, also our She Who Born the Battle uh, legislation to fill gaps in care for women veterans, all getting additional co-sponsors in the home stretch at the end of this year. Uh, that's going to help us better uh, be able to tee it up, start the, the beginning of the next Congress in January. 
And that is going to be a big time. Of course, as you said, a lot has gotten done. One thing I did want to ask you about, we talked about earlier today, I went on a bit of a rant in the uh, first segment uh, that I was talking about earlier, and that is the issue with the GI Bill and people not receiving payments and people being told, well, maybe months before you receive your payments. This is something where, you know, it went through, there was legislation involving the changes in the GI Bill. They had essentially a year at the VA to get this done after Congress told them to get all these things done. Yet here we are and they're still having problems. Why do you think that happens? Why do you think when they're given even a long lead time to get something done, there's always these kinds of issues at the VA, it seems? Yep, Eric. And and government never is fast. That's something that I've learned in this town, been here a long time is that uh, you can never expect them as much as you want them to. And, and, and as, as important as the issue is, they're not going to just turn on a dime. Um, that being said, they've had plenty of lead time to get this yeah. thing rolling and make these changes from the uh, new GI Bill expansions. And this is why we keep pointing to uh, what we've called chaos at the top of, of the VA in terms of uh, high turnover, leadership vacancies, uh, you've got some great people that work at the VA, many of them veterans. But when you've got leadership vacuums at the top until we've had recently with the secretary, you're not going to have the motivation and the push uh, for everybody in, in the department to get things done on time. So that's why it's really important uh, for Secretary Wilkie uh, to to get his arms around this and keep pushing forward, uh, realize that they're they're behind the ball on this thing and uh, and get this job done for vets. I know you mentioned that the the GI Bill, and we're still pushing for Secretary Mattis and the Department of Defense to back off of a new uh, instruction a couple months back that limits the transferability of the GI Bill to dependents to 16 years or less of service. Yeah, and that is, uh, we've talked about that, and it's kind of putting uh, your senior folks over a barrel where, well, what are you going to do? You're going to get out at 16 years and start going to school or transferring to your kids without knowing whether you're going to go to school or they're going to go to school. If you have kids after you've served in the military, like I did, then you get no ability to transfer it. Uh, it, It's There's some odd things going on with the GI Bill that I don't particularly care for. That's one of them. And then, of course, people not being paid their living stipend, not being paid their tuition, that is massive. And as you said, government is never fast. Well, you know what? It can be slow and competent. Right now, we're seeing slow and incompetent. And when those two things come together, it is a nightmare scenario. And again, you've got people who are probably going to have to stop going to school, at least temporarily, because, well, I don't know when I'm going to be paid for this. And those schools, you know, I suppose you could blame them, but they need to get paid. They're not charities. They're they're not operating uh, for free. They have a lot of costs to cover. And if they're not getting the money from those GI Bill students, well, that is not a good thing. Of course, the other issues you talked about, cannabis is still in such a strange one where now it's legal recreationally in a lot of places, including right here in Washington, D.C. I just found out yesterday there's a place I saw a truck driving by. It's a delivery truck. Marijuana, they deliver to wherever you are, apparently. You can actually call and have an order placed and have it delivered to where you are, yet you can't go to the VA hospital and have them prescribe uh, marijuana to you, despite the fact that there have been several studies that show that it does help with a number of things, including appetite, and it's met, it's, it's legally uh, available for medicinal purposes in a large number of places. But still, we've got the federal government kind of saying, nah, we're not going to do that. Right. And I, and I can understand. There's, there's plenty of people, uh, more old school, that, um, that have doubts about its, about its uh, 
benefits. But that's why this legislation that we're backing, that's the, that's why this is so important. That's the VA yeah. Medicinal Cannabis Research Act, because it does the fundamental, answers the fundamental questions of, is it safe and does it work? And everybody should want to know that if, if, if there are strong indications that it is helping vets, let's do the research at the VA and then move forward from there. That is a big deal, and that's just one of the things that IAVA is focusing on, including the issues that women veterans and active-duty military members are facing, and oh, so much more. Tom, if people are interested in finding out more about Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, where do they go to do so, and who do they reach out to if they want more info? Well, our website is iava.org. Our Take Action page is there, iava.org forward slash take hyphen action where you can engage with your members of Congress quickly and directly. Uh, But you can also go to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash IAVA.org or follow us on Twitter at at IAVA to find out everything that we're doing in the public space with our veterans and on Capitol Hill. We want to thank IAVA's Legislative Director Tom Porter, as well as Lauren Hope of Hope Designs Limited, Army spouse doing some amazing things for joining us on the morning briefing today. Hope you have a great day, and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.